Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. The Essential 100 Bible Study, also known as E100, is led by Father Christopher Rodriguez. This study is an overview of the Bible that guides you through 50 Old Testament and 50 New Testament stories. Upon completion of the study, you will have received the big picture of God's Word. So today we're going to talk about the, the, the conclusion of the study of Noah and his what? Ark, right? Um, before we get into that, I want to spend a little bit of time on something which we haven't really talked about, but we have to talk about because otherwise this Noah stuff and actually nothing until Jesus will make any sense. And that is the question of God's wrath. Is wrath a good word or a bad word? Scary. Scary. Good or bad? What do you think? Yeah, it, depends. it depends on if you're the, in my experience, it's bad. Um, Wrath is a word which means somebody who executes justice. Does that make sense? Okay, so if I steal a piece of candy, what's happened? There is something which has occurred which is a violation of what? Law or just fair justice. Um, if I do that, that's got to be paid for. Do you understand? It's actually kind of common sense if you think about it. That justice means if God is just, which he claims to be, uh, if God is just, then anything which goes wrong has to be paid for. Okay? So let me give it to you, like, give you an example. Say, say somebody, um, you're at Publix and somebody backs into your car and they put a big dent in it and they get out and they go, oh man, I really dented your car. And you said, yeah, what are you going to do about it? And they said, nothing. <laughs> it's happened to me too, that's why I'm bringing it up. And, and say the police showed up and you said, hey officer, what are you going to do about that? And the policeman said, nothing. And so you went to court and that judge, uh, you said, your honor, I, the guy owes me two grand and what are you going to do about it? And the judge said, nothing. What would you say? That's not what? Fair. So the idea is that all debt or sin, you could look at it that way, has to be atoned for as a matter of justice. And we all know that, right? I mean, that's just a trite example. But we all know that if injustice is uh, given, it's got to be paid for. Otherwise, something's just not right. Does that make sense, everyone? And secondly, so what if, let's take that to a cosmic scale, what if God, um, a God who is a God of love and a God of wrath, what if God said to you, well, you know, I know somebody stole $10,000 from you, but come on, can't we all just get along? <laughs> right? Or, uh, let's use an extreme example, um, Adolf Hitler, right? The argumentum ad Hitlerum, always good for the extreme, but it makes the point. Um, Adolf Hitler, yeah, I know, we, he caused a lot, we all, everybody makes mistakes. Can we all just cut, it up, cut him a break? I mean, could you imagine if God was that way? No. No. Would that be a God worth worshiping? No. no. So the point you have to understand something is people say, well, why does God get so, why does he fly off the handle and kill everything on the earth because of some sin problem? Well, here's the reason why, and we're going to see this over and over again, and I'll get to it in a minute, that all sin, and the word for sin just means brokenness and violating God's law, all sin has to be atoned for. Otherwise, God is not worth a piece of paper. He's counter to his nature, which is just, right? And for sin to go unpunished, it sounds harsh, but if you think about it in your own heart, would it be right if somebody who sinned against you wasn't punished? And the answer is what? No. no. So what I want you to understand, it's so important, and the, the Bible won't make any sense to you until you get this, until you understand this very important detail, is that God's wrath is where God is protecting, not protecting, uh, administering justice for the sake of people that he loves, okay? And for the sake of his own nature. So, for example, in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 6 last week, we looked at the flood narrative, and what does God do? He wipes out what? everything, everything, creeping things and livestock and so forth. He said, well, why does God have to be so short-fused? Well, 
He's not actually short fuse. What he's doing is he is executing justice. Okay? The only people who do not have justice executed on them are who? Noah, and by extension his family. Why? Because Noah is just, unguilty. But I want, I want you to see that detail because God's going to say today, you know, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to wipe out the earth and all of its living forms. I'm never going to exact justice unilaterally upon the sin of humanity ever again the way I did it before. But the thing which is kind of left hanging out there is, well, then God, how do you fix the problem? Are you with me on this? So how, does God, how is God a God of justice and mercy at the same time? How is he a God of both love and wrath at the same time? They're two sides of the same coin, but the one thing you've got to get into before we understand today is God's wrath is not just, you know, like you know, your Uncle Jim who gets drunk at a, at a family party and loses his temper. God is, uh, is, is wrathful because he's loving, because he's executing justice on sins that have been committed. Does that make sense, everyone? Any questions on that? And actually, if you just make it a practical level, if somebody wronged you and the court said, hey, just take it on the chin, pal, you'd be outraged. And that's kind of how this whole thing works. If you consider yourself, boy, God seems wrathful, well, consider the alternative, which is even more terrifying, a God which didn't care. A wrathless God. Anyway. So, anyway, we're going to talk about that today in the context of Noah. Now, we're going to pick up today uh, in Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 8 and verses, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. So, Let's go ahead. Anybody, any questions before I go? Nothing? Okay. So the first thing we look at is God, uh, let's look at this. God remembered, so the flood has occurred. We saw last week that the, everything has been killed. Everything is wiped out. Noah's floating in the ark, right? Is Noah floating in the ark because he's an expert sailor who knows what he's doing? No. Why is he in the ark being taken care of? Because God put him there. And if you remember, God put him in the ark and God sealed the door. Remember that? And remember, too, that the word for ark is the same word used to describe the basket that carries Moses when his mother puts him in a basket to send him away from Pharaoh's wrath. It's a recurring theme, okay? So that whole thing happens. All living things are wiped out. And then we see in verse, chapter 8, verse 1, this is an important detail, and it's confusing to people, the following. But... And it's a contrast. So everything's wiped out. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. Can I ask you a question? Does God forget stuff? If God is the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, atemporal God who knows everything, what do you mean God? It's not, it's not like God is sitting around watching a ball game and goes, oh gosh, Noah. Like, <laughs> There's a word, this is an important detail, because you'll hear this idea of God remembered. We're going to see it again with the rainbow. Remembering, this is important, remembering in the biblical sense of the word, in this context, does not mean what you think it means. It does not mean to, well, what do you think it means? It means to do what? You've forgotten something and then, you know, your iPhone reminds you that you have to be somewhere, right? To recall an event, that's not what it means. The, the idea here of remember is important is to do something in accordance or to fulfill a prior promise. Let me repeat that. So to, do, to remember in this, in this context, and it's actually in the New Testament also, they, to remember means to do something to fulfill a promise you made to protect someone. So when, God, when the scripture says God remembered Noah, it's not saying God's like, oh boy, that's right, Noah, I forgot all about him. It's not saying that. What it's saying is God acts next based upon the promise he made to Noah earlier. You with me? So, um, you know, sometimes another kind of related idea is, you know, uh, when Mary is visited by the angel uh, Gabriel, right? Which means what again, Father? Gabriel? God is my strength. God is my strength. Thank you. Uh, Gabriel. Uh, when Mary gets visited by, by Gabriel, and Gabriel tells her she's going to be the mother of God, which, we'll get to that one later, 
she says the Magnificat, right? And it says, um, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has dealt mercifully with his servant according to his word. I'm paraphrasing, right? That idea of according to his word is the exact same idea, that God is doing something which he had promised before. Does that make sense? So when you hear according to his word or according to this, it's, it sounds clunky in English, but in Greek and in Hebrew and in covenantal theology, which we're going to get into today, it means that God has promised something and here is the fulfillment of it according to his word or remembering his word. Are you with me? Okay. Any questions on that? Um, so, to God, for God to remember means that he does what he says and he says what he does. And so what does God do? He, he remembers he had promised Noah made a covenant with Noah that he, would, that he would protect him. And what does God do? God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Did it dry out because of the sun? No. What, what dried out the earth? The wind. Does that sound familiar, anybody? Okay. Remember Genesis chapter 1, when the earth was formless and void and covered with water? How did God form the earth? He blew on it. The word for wind and the word for breath and the word for spirit is all the same word in Hebrew. It's the word ruach. And it means, it means for God's breath is, both a is a creative force and life-giving. When God breathes into the dirt and makes Adam, same word. So God breathes over the water and the water subsides. And then here's an interesting image I want you to see too in verse 2. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. Do you remember in Genesis 1 when God created the heavens and the earth? It said the wind was blowing over the force of the waters and God separated the water. Remember that? Well, it's the exact same imagery again. If you look at it, the fountains of the deep, water from below, is pushed down and water from the sky is closed up and the, the water begins to recede. The point I want you to see here is what, the, what Moses is doing deliberately is telling you, okay, here's what's happened. God, created, God had created the world. Somehow uh, the sons of men, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Nephilim we talked about last week, and evil became so perme permissive or permeating the world that God wipes it out and he's restarting it all over again. Does that make sense? At the end of the 150 days, the water had abated. And on the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Uh, where is Ararat? Anybody know? It's in Turkey. But notice something important here, because people forget this. Noah is in an ark. Anybody ever been in a storm in a boat without windows? Because there's no windows on the ark. <laughs> when, I, when, when we had the hurricane, a couple, well, whatever it was, a couple months ago, uh, and, the light, and the lights went out, we stayed here. And there's stuff beating against the side of the house, and the wind's coming in, and you know, you think you're afraid tornadoes are coming. It's not easy to sleep, right? I did, but it wasn't easy. Notice something important here Noah and his family are subjected to this storm for 150 days. In other words, God, God allows, God permits Noah and his family to be in a storm just like he permits you to go through a storm, and me. And, and, and it's figurative, maybe it's real, I don't know, if you're on a boat, maybe I guess it would be a real storm, but figuratively speaking, Noah is protected. Noah has gotta be afraid, I'm, I'm speculating, but let's assume he's afraid because you're in a windowless boat in the water, bouncing around with a bunch of animals, a little scary. But the point I want you to see here is that God, this actually takes a while. God's work and God's salvation doesn't always come on our time frame, does it? Is that true? It's certainly true in my life. Yeah, sure. Yes? On the second line it says, that were with him in the ark. That's right. So God was there. No, no, that's a good, okay, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the livestock that were with Noah in the ark. So God remembers, recalls his covenant, and it's interesting, that's a, actually a good point, Charlotte. God recalls his covenant, not, or his plan to save not just Noah, but God also remembers all the animals and livestock that are with Noah in the ark. So this is actually God reconstituting everything all over again. 
And of course, the question has to be, well, are we going to be just doing this cycle of like more sin and wiping them out and more sin and wiping them out? We're going to get to that in a minute. But God creates, God redoes Genesis chapter 1, and he and Noah is in the ark for 150 days. We find out later that after Noah lands on Mount Ararat, how long, how long do you think it takes for him to actually put his feet back on terra firma? Anybody know? I didn't know this until I studied it. 300, 365 days. It is a, 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 yeah. If you do the math in the 17th month of this day and you kind of go through the Hebrew calendar, it's a year. A lunar year, right? Lunar year, solar year, lunar year. So, that's so, so the point I want you to see in all this story with Noah is this is not just a happy fairy tale story. It's a story about God being with the people and his creation in the midst of suffering, which actually lasts quite a while. That's right. That's a good point. Jeannie says, because God told, God very rarely gives you a whole lot of information. We'll see this, we see this over and over again with Abraham, with Mary, the mother of God, with Noah. He just says, hey, dude, build a boat. Get out of the, I'm going to bring the animals to you, get in the boat, and, I'm, and just, I'll take care of you. But Noah doesn't know he's going to be in there for a year. He doesn't know how long it's going to take. God, doesn't, God gives him a promise. Noah obeys, which is the important thing. And then later on, God shows him the result. And here's the interesting thing. The way faith grows in God is that way. For Noah, for Mary, the mother of God, for me, for you. And that is, God says, listen, I got this. Calm down, and it'll be all right. It may not be the way you want, but it's going to be okay. And you're like, but, 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 no, hang on. It's going to be okay, right? And then later on, you look back and go, man, he really did bring us on dry land all over again. He really did what he promised, right? He remembered his word. What's that? That's right. It's a, it's a recurring theme. And, the, and remember, too, that the word for faith in Greek, not in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, the word for faith is the same word for trust. Right? Faith is not just wishful thinking. Faith is actually, Hebrew says, hope in things not seen. But it's actually, it's not based on a fairy tale. It's based on trusting in God. How do you build trust in God or a person? You see how they act, and then you learn to trust them. Is that right? So if somebody says to you, if I say, hey, trust me, are you going to trust me? No, unless you know me and you know that when, I've, when you've trusted me before, I've delivered. Does that make sense? God is the exact same way. It's the same with a human in one sense as it is with God. You learn to have faith in God by having him make an outlandish claim, get in the ark, don't worry about it, I got this. And then later on, you see that he really does deliver. And then you go, wow, I, I can actually learn to trust him because he actually does what he says. Right? Make sense? So this is not just, again, this is, a, this is an important story because the Noah story is the story of all of us. Anyhow, so let's keep going. At, the, at verse 6, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark. So Noah's on the land and he doesn't open the window for 40 days. Don't worry about why, but it means a long time. And he sent out a raven. Anybody, have, anybody know what a raven is? It's like, a, like a crow, right? Isn't it the same thing? With a big one? What's about a raven? Why do you think he sent out a raven and not, I don't know, a sparrow? Ravens are stronger, good point. They're also, they are also, um, what do you call it? They can eat carrion. They can eat dead stuff. So he sends out a raven because he knows they're strong. Uh, and it can eat dead stuff. So I'm going to send it out and see if it comes back. And it might be gone for a while. And if it doesn't come back, either he's dead or he's found a place to live. But it can, it can exist outside of the ark. And so then he's, and that, so the raven goes out to and fro. And then he sent out a dove. And um, then verse 8, then Noah sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the earth. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him in the ark, for the wa waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. That's a really, actually, important little nugget. Here's why. 
Um, it sounds like what Noah's doing is putting a bird out, like kind of scoping it out, putting a bird out, and then um, you know, kind of like waiting for it to come back and land like a carrier pigeon or something. The imagery here is God does, sorry, Noah doesn't actually, he opens like a hatch because he hasn't actually opened any windows or anything. He hasn't looked out yet. He opens a hatch, he puts it out, and the, the dove flies out. Doves will return to where they come from, apparently. So the word here, this is actually a really cool play on words, is that in verse, um, in verse 9, then Noah put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. Notice this important thing. The word there is actually stretched out. Like, he's, he's not, Noah's just putting his finger out and the bird lands on him, which is what I would do because I'm like crazy about birds. But he actually is like reaching his, he doesn't look out because God hasn't told him to yet, but he's reaching his hand out, um, clamoring for trying to save this bird. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incredibly um, humble and uh, pastoral and compassionate word. You miss it in the, in the English, but in the Hebrew it's there. And the point is, it's the same word used for when God puts his hand out to have Noah go into the ark. So Noah is actually behaving in a very God-like manner. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, verse 10, he waited another seven days and then sent the dove out. And then finally... Um, the dove come back, comes back with a plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided. Anybody notice, ever, ever notice on our currency there's a dove with an olive branch? It's a symbol, because of this, it's a symbol of peace. In other words, the dove bringing this olive branch back is showing Noah that God, it's a great image, that God has delivered on his promise. So it's, and you could say, and I, and I would say, that the, no, the, the dove with the olive branch is actually God's way of answering Noah's prayer by showing him, right, that the earth is in fact dry, like I promised it would be. Again, Noah hasn't opened the hatch yet. He still hasn't looked out of the boat. All he has now is this, this bird who's come back to him and shown him that his prayer, his promise has been fulfilled. So here's a question. Uh, how in your own life, I mean, keep, this is, keep your eyes open for the dove that comes back with the olive branch, right? And what I mean by that is when God, God promises us things all the time, it's, gosh, it's so hard in life to be distracted by the immediate circumstances, but keep your eyes peeled and reach for the things that God shows you that things are going to be okay, right? Because he promises us these things, and the dove is a, is, a, is, a, is a real thing, but it's also a metaphor for answered prayer because God has used this bird to show him that what he'd promised him was real. And God will show you things in your own life in all different ways. And we could probably have lots of examples if we had the time for it today. But we'll use incidences in your life to show you that he's got it. Judy had a quick comment. Yeah, the raven, I don't want to get into that, but you're right. The raven is an unclean animal. The dove is a clean animal. And actually, Noah burns it up when he gets out of the boat. Um, or burns up something, anyway. But you're right. The raven is an unclean animal, and the dove is a clean animal. Yes, Anne? Ravens dwell on the very high spots in the mountains. Yeah. The very top of the mountains. Yeah. You know? and, they're, and they're, like your point, too, they're strong. They're a strong animal, they're hardy, and they can eat dead stuff. So, what's that? That's what I read. I mean, that's what I read. So I read it. But if you can prove me wrong, I'm willing to take correction. Okay. So let's move on. So, um, verse 13. Any questions or comments about this? I'm moving kind of fast, but I want to get to something. Why was it what, a lady? I don't know, but it's a feminine noun. That's a very good question. It could have been a male dove. I mean, they do make male doves, right? Okay. <laughs> You never think of a male dove, but I, you know, that's, I don't know why. But, but, but actually, you know what though, Brian, to your point, because the, the verbiage there, the, the text that shows the imagery of him reaching out his hand is a very pastoral, compassionate, protective move. Maybe, I don't know, but maybe the reason it's the feminine is to show that Noah is protecting something which is maybe more, more fragile than, say, the raven would be. But I, I don't really know the answer to that question. Okay. Verse 13, in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, 
the waters were dried off from the earth. By the way, when you see stuff like that, and when you see, and you see it a lot in the Old Testament in particular, in the 601st year, in the second day of the month, and the blah, blah, whatever, that is a Hebrew way of saying this happened on this date. It's like if we said October 26, 2017 at 427. When, when you see this expression, the uh, 601st year, 12th day of the month, it's a Hebrew way of saying this really occurred, it's a historical event, and it happened right here. So just keep, you don't have to worry about the 600 year thing, but the point you need to know is that the writer is, is saying in that kind of an expression, this really happened on a historical date and time, okay? Um, and the waters were dried off from the earth. This is great. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked for the first time. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. Another little nugget to be aware of, the word behold. Anybody here ever used the word behold in ordinary language? I, never ha I have never actually used that word. I mean, I have, but not in ordinary speech. The word behold, it's translated behold in here and in the Greek in the uh, New Testament, is really important. When you see the word behold, and a lot of translations don't, leave, don't include it, but the ESV does, the translation we use. The word behold always means pay attention, listen up. Something really big is going to happen that has a significant theological point. So in the, Hebrew, in the Greek, in the New Testament, behold, the Greek word is eduo. In the Hebrew, the, Greek, the word is, I don't know <laughs> what it is. But when you see the word behold, it means, listen, something big is going to happen. So, behold, the face of the ground was dry. In other words, the, the fulfillment of God's promise. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then, and this is an important detail, then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Sound familiar? That's what God said to Adam and Eve. And what's the next thing? So Noah went out. What did Noah wait for before he left the ark? What's that? He asked until God told him to do it. One of the things you see about Noah, and you see as a definition of righteousness, and I'm going to talk about this on Sunday, is what defines a person in a person of, who's righteous is somebody who knows what they're supposed to do and, and waits for, and does it, and waits for God to tell him. Like Noah, God hadn't told him to do it, so he didn't do it. He waited for God, he trusted God long enough to know that God would tell him even though Noah didn't know when he was. Noah would have sat in that boat for five years if he'd had to, eaten whatever he was eating, until God had told him to leave. So the point is, um, if you want, wait for God. <laughs> um, every beast, every creeping thing, and every, every bird that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. And then, Verse 20, this is, a, this is an important detail, then I want to get into something else. Um, so, Noah, so Noah went out, in verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord. What did he do? Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. What's the first thing he did when he left that boat? He thanks God. Uh, he built, it's actually the first altar you see in the, in the Bible. Uh, and uh, he builds an altar to the Lord to worship God. In other words, Noah had been through a storm, he'd been through tumult, he'd been through fear, like we all go through, and the first thing he does when he recognizes God has rescued him and his family is he worships God. Do you all know that for Christians, I should say for Anglicans, and Roman Catholics too, our primary worship is called, there's lots of words for it, but the most, the most important one is the word, you know it, Holy Eucharist. Holy, Euchar Holy Eucharist. Um, everybody know what that means? Father Gritter knows. The word Eucharist, holy, means set aside for God's youth, right? Or use. So Holy Bible means book set aside for God's use. Eucharist is the Greek word Eucharistos, and it means to give thanks. Yep. So what we do on Sunday 
in church is we give thanks. Why? Because God has saved us or is saving us or is, is making us, is protecting us. So we do what Noah did. Noah built an ark to the Lord and took up some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings to the, on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, listen to this, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Now, it doesn't tell you how God's going to deal with the sin problem, but what it does say is I'm never going to do it by wiping out every living thing. It leaves the question hanging. We're going to get to it in a minute. God doesn't say, you know what? They just had a bad day. I'm not going to worry about the sin thing. He says, in fact, he says, um, for the intention, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Listen to this. For, you could say because, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. What is God saying there? God is saying human beings are fallen. You, the word we, we, word we would use would be sinners. But what God is saying is, you know what? These guys are a mess. <laughs> and girls are a mess. God says, he says, they, they're in, the intention of every man's heart is evil from his birth, from his youth. But I'm not going to solve the sin problem, the justice problem, by wiping them all out. It's a big deal, because the question's hanging. Well, how's he going to do it? But he says, I'm not going to do it by actually visiting vengeance upon the whole earth and destroying it. We will see how he solves the problem later, but we don't see it yet. Uh, a clean animal is an animal that can be, can be sacrificed to God, and an, an unclean, animal, unclean animal, you can't. Why one animal is clean and one is unclean, nobody has any idea. Anybody who tells you that God said, don't eat shellfish in the Old Testament to protect you from trichinosis or whatever it was, that's pork, yeah, whatever it is. That's just not, it's not there. There's, there is no rhyme or reason as to why God says some animals are clean and some aren't. He just says it. He doesn't give an explanation, and he doesn't have to. He's God. He do whatever he wants. Um, so the point I want you to see there, though, is this, this, uh, this aroma is pleasing to God. What do you think it means to say that an aroma is pleasing to God? He was great. God, well, Noah is grateful, and is, uh, Noah is thankful and burns an clean animals on the altar. And actually, you probably think, well, why in the world would God care about that? He actually does it. Because later on in the Old Testament, he says, I don't need your bloods of animals and goats. The, the, sacrifice of a, a, the sacrifice of God is a broken and contrite heart, right, when the core is changed. But, but then why would God care about sniffing a dead dove that's been burned on an altar? What does it mean? It says here, um, uh, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said, why is it pleasing? It's not because it smells good. You ever smelled a burned animal before? It smells terrible. Yeah, what it is, is what that, it's a way of saying God has accepted Noah's worship. Even though Noah is a fallen sinner, like God has said, the world is broken and fallen, man is sinful from his youth, Noah worships God, and the idea of it being a pleasing odor is not that God cares about burned animals. What's actually pleasing to God, let me rephrase that, what that means is that God has accepted Noah's worship. Because in some parts of the Old Testament, which we'll see later, the Israelites will burn all sorts of things and do all sorts of stuff, and God's like, your heart's so far from me, I, I refuse to smell the aroma from those sacrifices. You'll see that. So the point being that just because you burn, just because you make a worship to God, if your heart's not in the right spot, God won it. What makes, what makes Noah's offering pleasing to God is Noah's heart. Does that make sense, everyone? Because otherwise, you get into this really strange theology of you know, God having some sort of need for animals being killed repeatedly, and that's just not the case. It's a matter of the heart. Uh, and then verse 9, um, what am I doing here? Okay, any questions on that? Yeah, but, but that's a good point, and people have said that all, about shellfish and pig and all sorts of different things, but there's animals that God says aren't clean that any other culture would have eaten. God does all kinds of weird stuff that's clean and unclean, and we'll get to that later. Uh, but the point I, when you come, when it comes to ritual purity, which we're going to talk about with animal rules and circumcision and all these different things we'll talk about, there's rules that God lays out, and the reason he does it and says don't do that is because it's just weird. It makes them stick out. It makes people different. It makes, the, makes God's people unlike the other people. 
and makes them different. Makes them weirdos for Jesus is what it makes them. And the point I'm trying to make there is when God says, this is what you do and this is what you don't do, when it comes to ceremonial law, not moral law, but ceremonial stuff, there's really no rhyme and reason behind it other than God just says, this is what's going to make you stick out from everybody else. Okay. Um, and this is interesting too. God, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is chapter 1, verse 9. Here's an interesting thing. So God says, go out and con you know, fill it, redo it. You know, we've got to start from scratch here. And look at this. Really subtle little detail, but it's actually really important. God says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon the beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heaven. Why do you think God says that? It's the first time he does. God says, when you go out of the ark now, when you go and re redo this Genesis paradigm, when you're repopulating the earth, these animals are going to be terrified of you. Why do you think that is? For their own protection. For their own protection. Do you ever wonder, why, ever wonder why animals are by nature afraid of human beings? I don't think anybody really knows why. I mean, you can come up with some sort of post hoc reason, but the scripture says, is this actually God's way of protecting us because we don't have fangs and fangs and claws and, you know, that sort of stuff. So God says, instead, the animals are going to be afraid of you. So therefore, when you go out, um, you can, they'll be afraid of you. In verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green, green plants, I give you everything. Um, and I want to talk about this for a moment. Verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. This is really important. Sounds gross. What is going on here? Well, uh, in, in the uh, Old Testament idea, blood, can I, let me ask you a question. Where does your spirit exist? Blood is the source of life. It's where, in the Old Testament, your spirit, I don't say dwells, because your spirit is a non-physical thing, uh, but the blood is... Uh, where your life force is. So for example, anybody here know anything about Native American uh, ritual practices? Anybody? One of the things they would do is you go out and you kill a bear. And you don't just kill a bear, you kill a bear and you cut its throat and what do you do? You drink its blood. Now why would you do that? So the spirit of the bear, right? That's where this comes from. And don't miss it because actually Christians, even Christians are forbidden from drinking blood for the same reason. But I want to show you something really cool. But God says, you shall not eat flesh with its life in it, that is its blood. Anybody know that uh, one of the ways that you kill, slaughter a cow or a, a, a clean animal uh, through kosher, you know how you do it? You cut its throat and it bleeds out. The heart pumps the blood out of the cut vein in its neck. It's pretty gruesome. But the idea is the blood has to be out of the meat. Why? Because the blood is where the soul resides. You think, oh, come on, this is silly. Hang on. Uh, anybody, know, anybody know about modern stories about vampires? <laughs> what does a vampire do? It drinks your blood, and by doing so, it does what? It lives forever based upon your soul. It removes... The suke. Late now, so human beings are forbidden from eating animals, the blood of an animal, because it contains the life force, the soul. The Greek would say suke, which is sort of the soul spirit word. Um, even in the New Testament, we'll get to this later, in the book of Acts, they come together and they say, We got all these non Jews coming into the Christian family. What are we going to do with them as far as the dietary laws? Can they eat shellfish or not? Do we circumcise them or not? In other words, we make these new Gentile Christians follow Jewish ceremonial practices in Acts chapter 15 or 7. And the church comes away and says, no, 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 they could eat anything they want. We don't have to, they don't have to be circumcised, they have to be baptized. But the one thing they have to do, two things, is abstain from sexual morality and, anybody know? Blood. So even in the New Testament, and I'm getting to a point here, in the New Testament, to consume the blood of an animal, or horrors, a human, would be, would be 
out of bounds, not even, not even conceivable. So, when Jesus Christ says to you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no strength? No, life, suke, life force in you. Don't miss what he's saying, because he's saying it very clearly. And that's why everybody goes completely bananas when he offers this, the sacrament of the Eucharist, the, the body and blood of Christ. It's not just wine anymore. What Jesus is saying was, you consume this, uh, this blood, you are getting, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life, suke, spirit in you. So it's outrageous in its claim, but it's true. And what Jesus is saying is, when you eat, eat my flesh in the Eucharist and drink my blood, you are somehow spiritually getting my life force in you. Does that make sense? I've argued that two things. Zombieism is a mockery of the resurrection. I'm going to write a book about this someday. Zombieism is a mockery of the resurrection, and vampirism is a mockery of the Eucharist. When Jesus says that, it's outrageous that he says it, but he says it, and he says it to you and I. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no suke, life force in you. Think about that next time you come to the rail and want to dip and flip. It's <laughs> this, that's, this is one of the reasons I got hung up on that, folks, just so you know. I get that people are afraid of being, getting sick and all that, but if this really is the blood of Jesus Christ, which is what he claims, and by drinking that wine, which has been somehow changed into the blood of Christ, for God's sake, you're not going to get sick over it. Anyway, that's another, that's another rip. But that's the, reason I'm, that's the reason I get hung up on that. Not because, I mean, it's unsanitary also, but, but just realize what Jesus says here is so important. Now, I do want to get on, and any quick comments about that? I don't want to get too far on that one because I've got something I want to say about being made in God's image. And you had a quick comment? Or? It was because of the prayer. It says it's because he dwells in us. We in him, that's right. That we may evermore, that's right. That after the post-communion prayer, what do we say? That he may evermore dwell in us and we in him. There's this idea that Jesus actually comes into us in a spiritual strengthening way. You know, the sacraments in Anglican understanding are not just eating bread and drinking wine. It's actually how God comes into you in a supernatural way. Fascinating stuff. Anyway, um, let's move on. So, um, verse 5, but you, or verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And now you know why. And for your lifeblood, listen to this, for your lifeblood I will require reckoning from every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning of, for the life of men. Whoever sheds the blood of men, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. What's he saying there? He's talking about homicide. And actually, interesting, I never knew this before. God requires capital, um, I gotta be careful here. God requires capital punishment for the murder of a human being, both against humans and animals. It says it right there. Yeah, it says it right there. Um, for your life, verse five, and for your life, bud, I'll require a reckoning from every beast, I'll require it, and from man. Now, I don't want to get into capital punishment today, per se, because it's a little bit of a different argument. Um, but just understand this one thing. God says, why murder? And that's what the word is, murder, okay? Why murder is so egregious? And, here, and the reason is simple. Because to murder somebody, murder means you kill somebody with intentionality, right? It's not running somebody over accidentally or even warfare. Murder is killing somebody with, a, uh, with an intention of doing it, it's not self-defense, and it's because you're trying, to, you're trying to exercise dominion and power over them, right? God says, if you murder a human being, your life shall be taken from you because you have killed a being made in his image. It's wonderful theology. Now, let me, understand, let me ask you this. Has anybody ever heard of this old line? Anybody heard of something called the Lex Talionis? You have, if you don't know it. Let me write it out for you. Lex Talionis. Anybody know what it is? You won't want to tell you. An eye for an eye and a hand for an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Right? Is that cruel? It was the What's that? It was to put a 
It was, yeah, that's right. When God says, if somebody murders, if I murder Father Gritter, okay, which I won't do because I like him, uh, God is saying his life must be paid for with the life of the person who killed him. It doesn't say Gritter's family can come back and kill my whole family. It's actually a limiting thing. The Lex Talionis, which is this gets, on, gets into later, is what it's actually doing is restricting the punishment to fit the crime. And it tells you why, because if I murder him, he's made in God's image. And what I've actually just done is committed an act of idolatry. One thing you need to understand, not every world religion believes that to be true. Did you know that? Uh, we tend to look at other religions, particularly ones in the Middle East, Islam being one, depending upon the one you look at, the variety that you look at, don't all believe that a person has intrinsic worth made in God's image. I'll give you another better example. Uh, in World War II, I just got a great book about World War II today. Uh, in World War II, the Japanese were guilty of tremendous cruelty. You know why? They don't start from that premise. The, the, the Jewish Christian view of humanity is that we have intrinsic worth and value because we're made in God's image. And as you remove, as our culture begins to remove the idea of God from our culture, you will continue to see an erosion of the value of human life. I guarantee it. But you have to understand something. The Bible lays out that human beings are made in God's image. And by the way, I'll just say this. Two quick things about capital punishment. Uh, I'm not advocating for capital punishment today, whether you believe in it or not. I think you can make a case for it. Um, I don't want to get into that today. I have a personal opinion on it, but it's not important. One thing I do want you to understand is in the Old Testament, the standard to accuse somebody of murder is very high. Two or three eyewitnesses. So if I kill Father Gritter in a parking lot and nobody sees it, I cannot be convicted of murder. There has to be two or preferably three witnesses in the Jewish court of law to convict somebody of a crime, murder in particular. So it's a pretty high standard, okay? Secondly, uh, in the New Testament, and we'll get into this when we talk about Paul, uh, in the New Testament, the church does not, have, does not exercise um, juridical authority, civil authority. The state does, but we don't. In the Old Testament, when, when, the Israel, when Israel was a theocracy, so it was the church and state were all one, it was a different story. But what I want you to see here is at the very least, that at least in the Old Testament, and I would argue even now, uh, capital punishment for the murder of a human being is justifiable. I'm not saying American, the American legal system is doing it right. I'm saying from, an, from, an, from a biblical perspective, I think it can be justifiable. But that's a debatable point. Any comments or questions on that? That if we, if we remove, um, as, we, as we move away from that understanding of humanity, uh, as, we, as we move away from an understanding of, of God and being made in his image, I think you'll see an increased deterioration of the value of human life. I think we see it. We do. We do. Um, Okay, finally, I want to look at this. Uh, where am I here? Verse 8. Okay, um, so after that's all said and done, God says, you are made in my image. If somebody kills you, they are guilty of the punishment, if you can prove it, is capital punishment. And then God said to Noah and his sons with him, behold, which means look out, this is a biggie, right? Like I told you, that word behold. I established my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Okay. And with every living creature that is with you. So God is saying, I'm making, I am making a covenant with you, Noah, and you and your family and all, the, all of creation. Notice what he's saying there. It's a covenant. What did, did Noah ask for it? No. Did, did Noah deserve it? No. I'm going to get to that right now. God says, I'm making a covenant with you and your offspring and with every living thing that with, with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. It's repetitive, it's a Hebrew way of making a point, it kind of goes circular in an argument. I establish my covenant with you. A covenant is a, con a contractual agreement. Anybody here have a mortgage? That's a covenant, it's a legal term. I, God says, I establish my covenant with you, 
that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Does Noah, does Noah deserve this? No. Does Noah ask for it? No. Does God say, Noah, as long as you are a good boy and all your family, as long as you guys follow the rules and do everything right, I promise I won't wipe you out again. Does he say that? No. no. He says, I'm making a covenant with you. Here's an important thing to understand. It's the first covenant, arguably, in the Old Testament. A covenant, God creates covenants. Now that he's promised not to wipe out the earth anymore, he begin, or, or to look for a different solution, he begins a series of covenants that are one way Meaning that God makes the covenant with you and all creation, whether you can keep it or not. Okay? God says, I'm going to promise I'm never going to do what I've done again. But there's no quid pro quo. There's no requirement of obedience. God just says, I just promise you this. He doesn't say how he's going to deal with the sin problem. All he says is, I will promise, I'll make a covenant with you that I will never do this again. And we will see, repeatedly in the Old Testament, a series of evolving covenants that God makes with his people, and every single time he does it, he makes them, and his obedience to the covenant is not contingent upon theirs. Does that make sense, everyone? That is really important. It is different from every other religion that has ever existed. God says, I'm making a covenant with you. You can hold me accountable to the bargain, even though you don't have to, you don't have to do anything to keep it. And so as a result of that, God, uh, God makes this covenant, and he says, um, uh, this is at verse 16, again, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember Again, it's not recalling a past event. God is saying, when I see the bow in the clouds, I will see it, God. And I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. God is saying, that covenant is the, the covenant, when, I, when you see that um, the rainbow, is God's way of showing that he is going to keep the covenant. It's a reminder to you that he has made a covenant with us that we neither earn or deserve, it's important, but that he has done it as a promise just because he's God. Does that make sense, everyone? I was coming home recently from, from Orlando, down whatever the road is coming out of Orlando, and it was a huge storm. And there was a rainbow there that I, one of the very few I've ever seen in my life that went this way. I could see on the, on the horizon where it started and where it ended. And I was driving along, and I took a picture of it, but don't tell anybody, but I was going, it was stopped. Uh, I was driving along and I thought to myself, wow, that is the promise that God makes with me to not visit my wrath upon me by killing me. Does that make sense, everybody? Because the first go around, that's what he did. He wipes everything out, but he's promised that he's gonna come up with another solution to the sin problem, another solution to the justice problem, and it's not going to be by visiting my sin upon what I deserve. Does that make sense? Are you guys with me or not? Because we don't know until later, but what we find out later is the way that God deals with the sin problem by the need for justice, by the need for paying for Rodriguez's sin, by not forcing me to pay for it with my own death, we see God finally fulfills that covenant of the rainbow with the cross. Everything points to Jesus. Do you, see one, do you see the point? God has said with the rainbow that he has made a covenant with me and you not to visit the penalty of your sins eternally upon you if you choose to let him take it. What do you think of that? So, even in Genesis chapter 9, we see, with the recreation of the earth, God beginning to unravel, okay, I'm going to deal with this fallenness of man in a different way. And I'm going to deal with it in a way which is both just and fulfills the requirements of justice,
but doesn't require from the people that have committed the sin. And the only way you could possibly do that is to have a God who is also a man, a God who took the sins of man upon himself, who had no sin of his own, and willingly died to pay for it. Are you with me? Does that make sense, everyone? It all hangs together. And we see that, of cross, of course, <laughs> with the cross of Jesus. We won't get there for a while, but we will. When you see a rainbow in the sky next time, and, and your grandkids or your kids are like you're reading a book about a rainbow, it's not just about a pretty rainbow that God's, you know, God did a nice story for Noah. It's actually pointing them to how God is going to save their soul should they choose to accept it. I saw a double one. You did. That's because God doubly loves you, Charlotte Howell. <laughs> I have two quick, I have two minutes for questions if anybody has one. Yes, Martha. There are all, yes, what you actually see, oh, okay, thank you, Father Gritter. Martha's question is, between the wiping out of people in, the, in Genesis by people paying for their own sin to the cross, do you see other ways of people striving to pay off their sin? And the answer is yes. And what you begin to see is God begins to give the law to show them how to live. But if you know how that works, the law shows you how to live, what the rules are, but doesn't actually allow you to do it. Right, so the question actually, remember, remember we're talking about meta-narrative here, right? The big picture of the Bible. The question of how does God deal with the sin problem hangs over the entire New Testament. It just hangs there as an unanswered question. Despite all the sin and brokenness we see, and we're going to continue to see, it hangs there waiting. Well, how's he going to solve the problem? And we don't know until the new covenant, which is the final covenant of the cross. Good question. Anything else? Yes, Judy. It does. The theme of righteousness, Judy's question is, doesn't the theme of righteousness run through the whole thing? And the answer is yes. God desires righteousness, but as he just admitted, mankind is broken from his youth. He can't do it. I can't, you can't either. But God still, by, by being a just and holy God, requires it. So do you, see the, do you see the dynamic tension here already? I hope you do, because it's all through Scripture. And it's, it's repeated over and over again, this tension between God's holiness and God's justice and our, and our brokenness and his love for us and wanting to find a way to be holy and just, merciful and just at the same time. Right? It hangs there until the cross. He continues the covenants. I'm sorry, Judy, what? I'm actually going to, Judy's question is, is the greater a person's faith, the greater their righteousness? The, actually, the answer is actually um, yes. And basically, the way it works is like this. I'm going to preach about this this Sunday in Psalm 1. Uh, blessed is he who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The word blessed is happy, joyful, at peace. God lays out how happiness in this world is found through keeping doing right and staying away from wrong, right? The problem is, and it hangs there too, is the problem is none of us can do it. But it has to have deep roots. But you'll see, that's right, but then, but the, yeah, I'll get into that Sunday. You gotta come back for that one, that's a, that's a game. <laughs> yes, real quick. Give me a few word definition of righteousness. Righteousness is doing the right thing. Right, yeah, righteousness is doing what God tells you to do. No. Well, there are some things which are morally unclear, but this old, and we'll get to this, the Ten Commandments being a great example, right, of what is moral and what is immoral. I mean, just because someone says, I don't feel that's moral, well, that's fine, but according to what, the, what Scripture says, some things are right and some things are wrong. Some things are just kind of nothing, but there is a clear thread of what God says is the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. Right? And he holds us to this standard, even though, like he admitted in a few verses earlier, he knows we can't keep it. Moral relativism, moral relativism is a fabrication of the 20th century. And actually, but think about it like this. Once you remove God from the picture, you have to have it. We'll talk about that later. That's another fascinating thing. God has made his covenant with Noah and his people and creation and you. And the covenant says this. I will not hold you accountable for your sins by, by requiring your life from you 
doesn't tell you yet how, but he does tell us how he does it later through the cross. Take that with you if you've got anything. All right, we're done. Shall we pray? The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Thank, Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for creating us in your image. We thank you, Lord, for placing value upon human life. Lord, we thank you for Noah, for his faith, for his witness. And Lord, we thank you most especially for the covenant you've made with him and with us not to hold us accountable for our actions if we place our trust in Jesus, that he is the one who makes us righteous, that he is the one who takes our sins upon him, that he is the one who pays our debt in our place. So Lord, we thank you that even in Genesis chapter 8, we see the plan, your plan beginning to unfold. And Lord, give us a, a sense of excitement and wonder and just awe at your word as we begin to see that plan play out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, friends. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.